Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. History's been leaning on me lately I can feel the future breathing down my neck And all the things I thought were true when I was young and you were too Turned out to be broken And I don't know what comes next In a world that has decided that it's going to lose its mind Be more kind, my friends Try to be more kind So that's a pretty good song, I think, for what we're about to talk about, at least for one of the layers we're about to talk about. So speaking of that, I didn't pick out that song. Let me tell you what it's like to be a public radio show host. You have these really great producers, and they book guests, and then they pre-interview the guests, and then they they tell you basically what you should ask the guests. <laughs> they give you a rundown of what you should ask the guests. And, you know, I mean, they pick out songs like that one. So I'm basically Ted Knight most of the time. I mean, it's just job is actually easier than it it looks. So what I'm always asking is asking myself is how can I mess this up? How can I disrupt this paradigm? Um, so one of the things that I propose doing during this period, this long, this months long period of confusion and anxiety uh, and change, this moment uh, of being on a threshold Whereas, in fact, we're doing a whole show about that tomorrow. But, you know, Matthew Arnold talked about uh, where, uh, where the past is dead and the future is powerless to be reborn. That's kind of where we are right now. And so what can we what can I do? And I, I started saying to my producers, I'd like to do some long form conversations where, you know, it's with people I know. So I kind of know what we can talk about. And so my first thought about how to do that, and first of all, it takes the producer right out of the equation. You know, there's no way they can come up with a list of questions. Uh, my first thought about it was to uh, talk to the person that we are going to talk to today, or that I am going to talk to today, who arrived in my life, I'm going to say 35 years ago. I, I'm, I'm not far wrong when I say that anyway. Uh, she came to the Hartford Current from the Wichita Eagle. She did not accurately represent who she really was. But she also did not waste very much time in really letting us know who she really was. So Susan Campbell has been an exciting uh, fixture on the Connecticut journalism scene and, and lots of other scenes as well. During that time, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, columnist, a distinguished lecturer at the University of New Haven, and the author of Dating Jesus, a story of fundamentalism, feminism, and the American girl, Tempest Tossed, the spirit of Isabella Hooker, and most recently, Frog Hollow Stories from an American Neighborhood. Most notably for nine years, but who's counting? I either sat next to her or across from her at work, and I lived to tell the tale. So welcome back to our show. Welcome back to my show, and welcome to this conversation, Susan Campbell. Thank you so much. Aren't you worried that long form, what if your guest just flops? Well, I'm not worried about that with you. 
I would be. I, I haven't really run into a lot of situations where you don't have things to say. <laughs> uh. That's very kind. Thank you. So, you know, I mean, so much of this, I, I think when we as journalists live through periods of crisis, there is kind of this it's we ask ourselves a question we should ask ourselves every day. What's my job? What am I supposed to be doing right now? Um, and and I want to begin this conversation, not now, but during 9-11, where I think both of us asked ourselves in very pointed ways, what's my job right now? What am I supposed to be doing? And you decided that your job really was down at ground zero covering first responders. I mean, maybe you want to say a little bit more about how you spent some of that time. I, I don't know that I ever actually stopped and, and chose that. It, it felt like I needed to be there. I am the wife of a retired firefighter. And after they, after they started counting the lost people, I noticed all the first responders who were lost and would be those who weren't lost would be affected forever. Um, and I went down the Friday after the Tuesday and hung out in Brooklyn in Park Slope, just stood outside a firehouse. And I, didn't want to go in. I, I'm not a, I'm not a great journalist. I don't go up and ask people on their worst day of their lives. So how's it going? I just wanted to observe. And I was with the photographer, Al Chernuski, and we just hung out all day. And, and, and what happened from there? I mean, my recollection is you wound up down. I, I mean, I came and went from ground zero and I, mm -hmm. I eventually, for a while, I moved my show, I borrowed a studio from WINS so I could do a show down there. But I feel like you stayed down there a while or you came and went many times. I came and went. Um, I was there, I think, three days at, at that point, And I went to ground, as close as you could get to ground zero. And I, like everyone, brought back stories that were just unbelievable. And if I hadn't seen them myself, I, I would not believe it if someone told me these stories. But... Um, it affected me profoundly in ways that I, I didn't get to at the time. I'm a journalist. You put your head down, you take your notes, you come back, you meet your deadline, you, you know, observe gallows humor like a religion, and then you move on to the next story. And this was the first story where that, that process got interrupted for me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. But so when did you know, when did you know different? When did you know? how it was really affecting you <laughs> last Tuesday. No, <laughs> um, it was a long time. I can't remember a point. Like, I think you maybe have a point in time where you can say, this is when I started to shut down, or this is when I really started to be affected. I would be in the newsroom and I would smell something or I would hear someone and I would have to stop. And I couldn't, I'm not that deep. So I couldn't put my finger on what, what the heck's wrong with me here. Hmm. Um, but it was it was easily months, if not a year, before I realized I, I ended up with adult onset asthma from breathing in the uh, debris, um, and I didn't know that. And I had a months long cold. And I think, as I said in my pulmonologist's office, and he he told me you have asthma. I'd never had had asthma. So he's at, he's a good doctor. He's asking me questions. And well, I was down in New York. <laughs> like, Oh, by the way. And that was it. And right. as I was driving home, I thought, well, I'm going to carry this around, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, when we were down there too, I mean, there was this very peculiar 
stuff in the air and you knew yeah. that some of it was people, you know, that yeah. that that particles of people were, were suspended amid smoke and toxins and lots of other stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've written about this a couple of times now. I actually did have this something approaching a breakdown, I think, and it, it happened a little bit sooner. It happened um, right around the time that uh, we reverted out of daylight savings time, that it got dark earlier. I have no idea why that was the trigger, but I went into this period, uh, but it was, you know, maybe six weeks or so after 9-11. I went into this period of anxiety that I couldn't get out of. I mean, I could do my show every day and I could kind of walk through life, but I was just haunted and, and, and sick in my soul. That's what it felt like. It felt like my soul was sick in some way. And there isn't any doctor you can really go to about that. Um, and I didn't feel better th th until, oddly enough, in the Church of St. John the Divine, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine up mm -hmm. in Morningside Heights. I was there. Luann Rice had met me. The writer, fellow writer Luann Rice had met me. She knew that I was really suffering. And she walked me over there. And just, I'm not a big, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about faith later on. I'm not a big church building person, like what kind of building it is. But some of these buildings, they really do have something in them. I mean, I really started to feel healed in that way that I had been broken. But just to direct it back at you, I think this is a danger for us, for people who do our jobs. We start doing our jobs, uh, and it's not like we're first responders. We're second responders or third responders. But, boy, if you ignore <laughs> this other stuff going on inside you, you do so at your peril. Yeah, and, and I, I wouldn't want to equate what I do with what my husband did for a living. But I, I remember, this is not 911 related, but there was a photographer who was in New Britain who was at a hospital and happened to be there when a gentleman jumped off the roof or off the mm. parking garage roof. And he did what a photographer does. He pulled his camera up and he shot. Mm -hmm. And um, he came back and the current didn't run those pictures, but instinctively, I must observe this. I must record this. And he was pacing up and down a hallway. And, you know, I knew him enough to stop and talk to him. And, and it, it, it hurt him. You know, mm -hmm. It wasn't just, well, I got the shot. It was, this is a human being. And I just recorded their last moment on earth. I don't know what to do with all this. And, and I, I, I don't know that in journalism school anyone ever told me, and I tell budding journalists now, you will sometimes see people on the worst day of their lives. And if you are human and have any compassion whatsoever, it will you will feel it. You should feel it. You can't not feel it. Um, but there was no mechanism at the current, at that moment, for him to go to a quiet room or talk to someone, you know, I, I guess he could have gone into the, whatever that was called EAP program, but yeah. he needed someone to talk to right then. And nobody stopped to say, are you okay? Mm. Having witnessed this. Yeah. And I think part of that is because it's hard to unbraid that from what the job is, you know, I mean, when, when you do journalism, um, you, you do learn to push stuff down um and the problem is it just doesn't stay down um <laughs> no and 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 then it comes in and gets you and you know the other thing I, we were emailing back and forth uh somewhat yesterday and i was talking about how i felt at that time like life was a big dry erase board that had all kinds mm. of stuff written all over it and that 9 11 kind of just automatically erased 
almost everything on the dry erase, dry erase board. It was sort of there's love and death, and that's about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Did you have an experience equivalent to that? Did you have did the crisis sort of like I don't know? Did it scatter some things that ultimately were peripheral, but you didn't know it? I do remember coming home that first day, that that the day of the attacks, and hanging an American flag on my porch, which I, I don't do. I'm mm. I'm not big on symbolism. I love my flag, but I don't hang it. And I remember as I was hanging it, thinking, everything is changing. Mm. And as a journalist, how am I going to, I guess I do think about my job, how am I going to like you said earlier, what will be my role? I don't know anything. It felt like the planes were dropping out of the sky that day. How do I make sense of this? Because I thought that was my job for people who are sad and scared and not sure what's coming next when, kind of like now, we don't know what's coming next. Yeah, so let's transition there. What do you think? How do you feel about your job right now? What do you think your job is? I mean, we should say that all journalists do different jobs and we, you know, yeah. I mean, nobody can do the whole thing. So you pick you pick some things out for yourself. What do you see as your job right now? Well, I, I only write once a week as a, a journalist. So my job as I see it is constant reassurance <laughs> because I really do believe this. We are going to be okay. We are going to be okay. I felt that way after 911, even though it's a completely different tragedy. It, it happened, and then we're picking through the rubble, and okay, all politics, everything changed. But in this case, the bombs are still dropping, and people are still getting sick. And, you know, even though I'm as cynical and nasty as they come, I, I always believe it's going to be okay. So my just about everything I'm writing on some level in my head, I'm thinking, you know, go ahead and freak out, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. I'll be there with my hair on fire, but it's going to be okay. This doesn't <laughs> hurt. I, I don't know if that's smart at all. Well, I think, you know, we all have our kind of dodges. I mean, mine is, I think, and it has been very much this time, trying to figure something out at some kind of trying to educate myself in some way, you know, so that uh, I know more than most people, which is a completely, um, I mean, I think there's a, a defensive quality to that. This is how I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to know more about microbiology and virology and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to learn about it. And then I'm going to interpret it for people. And that's going to be my job. And, and I'm going to feel pretty safe doing that. I feel like you take more risks typically, you know, <laughs> Uh, I it's going to be okay. No, really. That's not a risk. That could no, be really stupid. No, but you, I think you really engage your emotions um, in in the way that you write, in the way that you cover it. You don't, I tend to, I think I duck back down behind some kind of cerebral stuff, you know, and I think you're, you're a little bit more willing to sort of talk about the places it hurts or the places it doesn't hurt or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I, I just want to in, interject here that I one time got a nasty comment from someone who said I was a fake intellectual. And I remember thinking, well, I wouldn't even aim to be a real one. Cool. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, we all have our dodges. And I think if I, if I write with emotion, it's probably because I feel them a lot. <laughs> um, when I talk, I'm, I'm expressive and, and probably what I'm hiding behind, if we're going to use that is, um, I don't know what I'm hiding behind. I, maybe you're not hiding behind anything. I mean, I, well, I know I that I am. I know yeah. that I am. But 
I no, you you have typically been, and I say this. I hope I'm not saying too much publicly, but you're a more reckless person than I am. No, that's accurate. <laughs> I have no argument against. It. <laughs> It's, in fact, um, in fact, I always thought that one of the bad combinations. Now, you may not feel that way, but when you discovered Twitter, I thought, oh, because she does. Oh yeah, she does. I've already been talked to by a boss about um, maybe I shouldn't use the language I use, and I felt sort sort of sorry for the boss that he'd been charged with discussing this with me, and then I just went right back to doing it. I mean, yeah. I, Twitter's not my friend. No, it's not your friend because you're, you know, impulse control. Is yeah, not, it's not, gone. It's, it's gone. If it was ever there, it has eroded. I but, know. you know, I'm saying, <laughs> I, I'm saying this to you on a day when Twitter has finally decided to try to do something about its most notorious abuser. You know, it now is has tried at least a couple of times to and apparently is going to continue appending uh, things to President Trump's tweets when they feel as though these tweets are either false or misleading or more information is needed. And, um, you know, I mean, he's the guy who probably would have lost his Twitter account if he were anything but president of the United States. But I mean, you know, and he's going nuts right now. He can't believe it. And he's using it as, you know, something yes, to explore. He's going to take down all social media. Good luck. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's interesting to watch that. And 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 I think what it took actually was not the tw the tweeting he was doing about mail-in voting. I think it was the tweeting he was doing about the Scarborough incident, which was so malignant and so unbelievably toxic. And Twitter decided not to act on that because they feel it's a public figure. And I don't know, they have some set of rationales for this. But, but it, there is some way in which he, it's finally a bridge too far. Uh, and and I'm, I think you and I are both thinking, what took them so long? <laughs> we are, and I will take some pleasure in thinking of him as a cornered rat. He's somewhere in the White House, you know, tweeting, and it's going nowhere. That makes me happy. All right. Well, while you're happy, we'll take a quick break, and we're going to come back with more of Susan Campbell and I after this. Can't see nothing coming up behind Make my way through this darkness I can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me Lost track of how far I've gone How far I've gone, how high I've climbed On my back's a 60-pound stone On my shoulder, half mile line Come on up for the rising Come on So I'm talking to the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Susan Campbell, uh, who currently writes a column for Hearst, as do I. Um, and so um, I, I think we do have to talk about the fact I, I sort of see our journalism careers as kind of divided into two parts. Um, and by the way, how long has it been? Was Have you been in Connecticut for 35 years now? Oh, crap. I have to do math. Um, <laughs> what year was it? I'll do the math. Okay, good. 86. Okay, so it's about 35 years. It's not quite. It's 30, 34. Yeah. It's way longer than I meant to stay. I've overstayed <laughs> my welcome. Right. You were going to be out of there here in two or three years, as I recall. Three. three. So, three. Yeah. So, uh, so that's how long we've known each other because I met you on your first day in Connecticut. Um, and I yeah, like and I heard what you said about me not representing. Is that because I sat quietly for five minutes? Yeah, you had this whole kind of little Mary Tyler Moore outfit on. 
You oh, know, that's and- the only article of clothing I had that <laughs> shipped my stuff. I, I had to wear it like three days. Bite me. <laughs> okay, I see, that's the, that's the person who emerged. Uh, we just heard that Rather person. quickly. Yeah, so, yeah, you didn't, I, I, you know, you didn't maintain a long deception. Uh, no. I think I made that no. point, too. So, but I feel like, you know, in some ways it does divide into two chunks. And one of them, I mean, not that the years, not that the 90s weren't, like, horrible, because they were, and there are all kinds of terrible things happen. In fact, I was sitting there the other day just adding up all the horrible things that happened in the 90s, and they were pretty bad. Uh, what a weird thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, just like what kind of decade was it? You know, it was just like this really awful decade. Um, but, I mean, I really do feel as though in some ways, you know, we talked about 9-11. To me, that's the beginning of a second phase and where, you know, as journalists, I think, you know, we were sort of tested in ways that we hadn't been tested before. And I think another part of this, and we're not going to harp on this all day, but the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was a moment where I think you and I both knew right away that this was going to be really, really different, that we were dealing with probably a psychopath uh, as president and that this just wasn't really any playbook for doing that. And, And I remember feeling once again horribly traumatized by this. I don't know. How are you? I don't think I talked to you right after the election. How were you like just with the, you know, with the results of that night? What, what happened to you? Um, I want to go on record as saying, I remember Donald Trump appeared on either time or Newsweek cover, maybe in the seventies, maybe early eighties. And I read it wherever I was and thought, man, I don't like this guy. I have not changed my mind. Um, after the election, I went from angry to white hot rage, and that's where I live. So I, I traumatize. I, rather than go to sad, I go to mad. Yeah. So, so um, I've been living there since November 2016. But I, I want to sort of scrape away at that a little bit and just sort of see what's what's Is this there. A therapy session? Am I supposed <laughs> no. to make cry? No, no, it's the opposite. I, th- I guarantee you, you'll feel worse at the end of the show. <laughs> So uh, I I promise you won't get anything good out of this. Um, So, um, (laughs) no, I guess what I'm really wondering is and and I think it's truer, truer for you than it or less of a surprise for you than it was for me. You know, there was a way in which as journalists, you know, we get a little jaded about politicians and, you know, we have pretty low expectations for them, or at least I do. Uh, I see them as people who are all addressing some kind of horrible psychic deficit in their lives and are, as Bill Curry pointed out to me one time, unaware that this is the worst way to try to address some horrible psychic deficit in your life, uh, that you're not going to get healed or mended that way. So I don't expect much. And, and it's hard to disappoint me, you know, in a very profound way. I, I like like you, I get mad when they're not what they supposed to when they're supposed to be, and I, I have had other times in my life where I felt like I didn't recognize the country that I thought I lived in. But, and I think you're maybe a one of the reasons you get so mad is maybe you're a little less jaded and cynical to begin with. I feel like there's yeah. part of you that really believes in oh, a yeah. certain kind of America that's supposed oh, yeah. to work a certain way. Maybe you could say something about that. I do. I um. I'm in some ways I'm five. Um, I tear up at the national anthem. I, if you play taps, I have to lay down and cry. I, I absolutely believe that I'm, I'm the John Dewey. Like if people have information, they will make good decisions despite all the evidence to the contrary. Um, so I get even more angry when I see someone abusing the public trust and being the worst human ever in the most powerful job ever. 
um, it, it completely befuddles me that that just keeps going on and on. And um, yeah, I think that very much explains a lot of the rage. If I was jaded, it would be, eh, what do you expect? Well, mm -hmm. I expect far more and I continue to expect far more and am continually disappointed. And you would think at some point along these very long years that I would have backed off from my expectations, but I still do expect, I still can read a tweet out of the white house and think you are kidding me. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of times at a time like this during these last three plus years, I think we've both felt a little bit like Wiley Coyote falling through the air, looking for maybe a branch that he can grab before he hits the ground. Um, and and I expect to fall a really long way, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't expect anything like this. I mean, I, and I really also I guess what I'm what I don't see now, what I haven't seen that has been so disappointing is a moment where everybody or almost everybody, irrespective of party allegiance, irrespective of who they voted for in, in November of 2016, just turns and says, no, no. This can't keep yeah. going, you know, yeah. I feel a little bit of that right now. But boy, I, I just way sooner. Uh, it turns out I must believe in human decency more than I had expected because I've been very disappointed not to find it. Yeah. And I, I look at the party leaders. I look at the GOP leaders and am just appalled because I I am related to many Republicans who are good and decent people for whom this particular party leader is anathema to what they want. They may have voted for him thinking that'll be something different. But if we all look back, this was what he and Bannon, Steve Bannon promised us that they would disrupt everything. Well, they've done that. How do you like it? <laughs> How do you like it now? They have disrupted every institution they could get their slimy little hands on. So this is what we have. Complete chaos. Are you and, enjoying this? I'm not. No, I'm not. And uh, to me, it's been troubling all along. But but here we are now with once again, you know, I mean, this to me is the bookend to 9-11. I wasn't ready for 9-11. I didn't know what a 9-11 was and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And it took a long time. And I feel a little bit that way this time. And and every conversation, I, I don't know what your experience is writing for Hearst. I get a fair amount of emails from people uh, in response to columns and an awful lot of them are unhappy with me. Um, <laughs> and but I, I feel like I just need to say at the beginning, look, can we just acknowledge that there are things that a president is supposed to do, you know, and even a president that we don't necessarily invest a, a lot of faith and hope in. I mean, I, I think of, of W after 9-11. I mean, he made a lot of really terrible choices a little bit later, uh, invading Iraq, being chief among them. But in the early stages, he he did what a president was supposed to do, you know, I mean, he kind of got us together and we, he told us not to attack our Muslim neighbors and he told us to go shopping, which was a little weird. But, you it know, was. it was recognizably presidential anyway. Um, you know, there was an attempt to lead the country, to rally our spirits uh, and to make us uh, cohere. And <laughs> I, I didn't even know how I would describe what has happened in the last two and a half months. But I mean, it is. It's such a shocking abdication of responsibility that it's almost hard to add it all up. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we have Uncle Pull My Finger. We went from the statesman to Uncle Pull My Finger, and now it, it's a little bit an odd car ride. And I think for grownups, whatever your political party, 
the difficulty is in for me how do i react to that because my immediate stance is pull my sword up and lop his head off verbally and i i don't you know that you can't live like that i do but you shouldn't be living like that how do you gracefully with class meet someone so lacking in both i i i, I don't know and, and it raises the question now of I mean, we have such a monumental task ahead of us. Somehow or other, we have to get through this pandemic and out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and and we also somehow or other have to deal with this horrible lack of leadership, not even an absence of leadership, but an, a negative oh. version of, of leadership. And we have to do these essentially at the same time. And I, I do feel as though right now we're living with and I think you implied this too, more uncertainty and more stress than mm -hmm. what followed 9-11, which had some kind of compactness to it. And, and I don't know, maybe you can say a little bit. I mean, uncertainty is such a hard thing to talk about because it's uncertain. But but say something about it. Well, I, the older I get, and I get older by the minute, the more I realize, you know, this, the, the Buddha changes life and life is changed. Mm -hmm. There is, there's no stasis. You want to believe that things are going to stay static. And this is, I've got my house, I've got my car. This is great. The car's going to start up tomorrow morning. Well, maybe not. And I'm not equating a car not starting with a pandemic, but we, we are always in flux. And this, if there's anything I'm grateful for, <laughs> I'll be careful here, for, for Donald Trump introducing, he had, he's a symptom to me and he has laid bare a lot of the fissures that have been there all along that some of us could ignore and move on. And I'm not just talking racism, but class, everything else. And with the pandemic as well, now is the time when if, if you want to see society laid bare, here it is. This is who we really are. So it's the people who are doing heroic things in their neighborhood beyond first responders. It's people hoarding toilet paper. Okay, now I know what you're like. And and I think Betsy Kaplan and I were talking about this earlier. To me, stress, stress is like alcohol. When someone is drunk, in my mind, all their inhibitions are gone and that's who they really are. So if they're wanting to get in a fight, they're actually wanting to get in a fight all all the time. They're just their inhibitions make them behave themselves. Stress makes us who we really are. If we're tense and nervous usually, but we can cover it up with a shell of calm, now, now we see who we are. So this pandemic has stripped us of our inhibitions, and this is who we are. Now what are you going to do about it? Did I answer your question? I went off on a tear. I, I like it when you go off on a tear. Okay. Uh, I thought it was – well, I, you know, you uh... – you actually echoed something I, you know, lately because I'm confused and uncertain um, when I'm not trying to study microbiology. I often do turn to poetry and I was just thumbing around in, in an anthology today uh, and I came across this poem by William Meredith called A Mild-Spoken Citizen Finally Writes to the White House. It was written in 1969. Um, but it says something that uh, it's, it's almost exactly what you just said. He said at one point he says, a man's mistake, a man's mistakes, if I may lecture you, his worst acts aren't out of character as he'd like to think, are not put on him by power or stress or too much to drink, but are simply a worse self he consents to be. Thus, there is no mistaking you. I marvel that there's so much disrespect for a man just being himself, being his errors. But that's sort of what you're saying too, that it's, 
it's not a mask exactly, you know, and, and there, it, it isn't a departure. The thing you were saying about when somebody's drunk, their real self comes out. Um, yeah, it's all kind of a, of a piece. Um, it isn't alcohol that made you do that. It's alcohol that showed you who you really are. Really are. Yeah. I remember um, after Hurricane Katrina, I was, uh, I just still went to the gym in those days. I was at the gym and I was watching on television. And this is embarrassing because it wasn't like I was a teenager at Hurricane Katrina. And I'm watching all the video and I'm realizing every face in chest deep water was an African-American face. And I thought, oh, wow, what if we started covering poverty as journalists and, and paid attention to this? Surely this will make us write about poverty in a different way. It's not someone over there and it's, it's you know, I never would have used the word intersectionality, but, and it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not holding out a lot of hope that as a culture we'll move forward thinking, not just waiting for the awful videos of a policeman's, knee on a guy's neck before we start talking about this, but start talking about the systemically, we didn't hold up real well during this pandemic. What this pandemic has made me realize, and again, I'm pretty old to learn this, is that so much of what I thought was solid is based on, is built on sand. Like that our economy could not function through this relatively short period of time with any degree of grace. That's concerning. You know, that's it. And it's not just our economy, but that I don't know. There's so many parts of what I'm seeing from my perch in my house because I really haven't gone out a whole lot. Um, it, it just feels like it's a lot less permanent than I thought. And right. I would. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, um, yeah. Back to your quote from the Buddha. You know, Lincoln famously uh, told a story, uh, repeated a story about an Eastern monarch, possibly Solomon, who asked his wise men to invent a sentence that would always be true and appropriate mm. in all times. And they presented him with the words, and this too shall pass away. <laughs> uh, and Lincoln said, how much it expresses, how chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction. And that's the thing that you sort of have to admit to yourself that, yeah, it's all, everything falls, everything goes away. The really good stuff is going to go away. The really bad stuff is going to go away. Right. Everything in, yeah. in between is impermanent. All things pass. Um, and, and when you understand that, I mean, one of the things that I, I have thought occasionally during all this is there's, you know, I mean, empires go away. The Roman Empire isn't around mm -hmm. anymore. At a certain point, there is not going to be a United States of America. Um, and I think we're we're seeing what it's like to get, you know, a few strides away from the edge of that cliff, closer to the edge of that cliff than we typically are. Uh, but, I mean, that's a weird thing to think about. I mean, we we grow up in civics classes and in, you know, elementary school indoctrination, nobody says, oh, by the way, at some point, this will all be over. Um, well, I don't want to believe it will be, but it, we're certainly morphing into something that I, I at present don't recognize. And I'm just, you know, it's going to be okay. I, I want to hold on to the hope that what comes after these changes is something better and, and more equitable. Right. Well, we have to believe that we're better than the system we're living in right now. Um, and um, 
while also admitting that we are the system that we're living in right now. The reason the system is so bad is because we all went along with it too long. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, just to also, I'll play you now. And I'll say, as I look around, I mean, the other possible, I think you can extract both lessons. The, the one about how, how bad we are, how flawed the system is, how unequal and unfair it is, and also what people have shown themselves capable of doing. You know, people who have understood that probably statistically they are not the people who are at risk of this disease, but they understand what they have to do to be part of a functioning society. There are a lot of people doing that. The cameras always get on, you know, the person who's the bunch of people in the swimming pool at the Ozarks yeah. or something. But I mean, the, the truth is and the people but the people who are standing up on their roofs in new york banging symbols oh, together no. for the first responders i mean that's that's us too you know it's we're broken but we also are have this a real capacity to fix ourselves when um when i was hanging out at that park slope fire department somebody said hey we're going to have a candlelight march this evening and again, this was a few days after the actual attack. So Al Chernusky and I hung out thinking, okay, well, we'll see what we can see. There were like 10,000 people in the streets and all through the day, people were bringing casseroles. So I come from Tornado Alley in Missouri and there's such a thing as the casserole brigade where all these old women from church, you know, the, the wind has passed, the trees are down and they're stepping over the trunks to bring you these nasty casser tuna casseroles, you know, because they know that they, you need to be fed, you need to eat. And I've, I've seen so much evidence of that. And maybe it's not physical casseroles, but where people, I don't know, they're reaching out in a way. I, I've gotten cards from people I haven't heard from in a long time. And, you know, I appreciate being treated as a shut in, but we're all kind of shut in right now. Yeah. And the last thing you want to lose is that human connection. You know, you can, I mean, maybe now we're going to start coming out of our hidey holes a little bit, but that's really hard. Even if you're not a terribly social creature, I adapted very well to being in my house, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I, I, I miss that human connection and people reaching out or a, a text or something like that. That's meant everything. And no, that's not moving mountains, but yeah, we are that. Look, I, I, uh, I don't, I know the politics of my neighbor. I don't like those politics, but I don't dislike my neighbor. And if they needed something, I, uh, sure. Yeah, sure. You know, there's, uh, it's funny that you say the thing about the casseroles too. I've been watching the HBO adaptation of Wally Lambs. I know this much is true. Yes. We both know, we've, and we both know Wally. Uh, oh. And um, there's a moment where at the, after one tragedy, all these people do show up. Uh, at Ooh. the home of Dominic and his then wife uh, with casseroles and yeah. he puts them all in the refrigerator and they don't eat them. And then he he's so rejecting of everything. He's so broken and hurt mm -hmm. and so angry about everything that he eventually just dumps all the food out, washes the casserole dishes and bring them back, brings them back. And even watching that, I was thinking, no, no, you eat those casseroles. <laughs> even if they are nasty, you eat them because they're communion. They are as communion as the holy wafer could possibly be. There's yeah. God. If God is anywhere, God is in those casseroles. In that, that some casserole. Yeah, because yeah. somebody made that. Somebody made that for you because they were you were hurting. It's actually one of the few. Well, I know I'm constantly pontificating to my son. I shouldn't say, but one one of the things that I have pontificated about over the years, one of the sayings I've tried to get him to absorb is: sometimes you can't do something for some. You can't do anything for another person who's hurting, but you can always make them food. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think the casseroles 
are, there's greatness in those casseroles, even if they really suck. Um, I, I remember I lost a grandfather and a woman came from church and she brought us a cake and I answered the door and she said, uh, and I'd said something like, oh, this looks lovely. Thank you. And she said, it has beer in it. Don't take, don't tell pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Best cake I ever had in my life. Yeah, it, you're right. It's, it's a simple act of I'm going to serve you. All right. Uh, that's going to be a great bridge into our third and final segment. The uh, hour is flying by fast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of me and Susan Campbell. Feels like coagulating. I'm sitting here just contemplating. I can't twist the truth. It knows no regulation. Handful of senators don't pass legislation. And marches alone can't bring integration. When human respect is disintegrating. This whole crazy world is just too frustrating. And you tell me. All right, we're back. Uh, I have to say some thank yous, especially to Cat Pastor, who's there in the studio. Actually, Susan Campbell and Cat and Pastor should meet at some point. I feel as though uh, they Ooh. are cut from the same bolt of cloth in certain ways. So you'd find some things in common. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode, uh, which in this case mainly involved trying to limit the damage, which I, I think she's done so far. Uh, and uh, we're going to have one more little bit of conversation here. I should say tomorrow is a show. It's a Josh Nalea show. We don't get uh, too many shows produced by Josh these days and he has this unique talent. It's a show on liminality, which is the quality of being in an in-between state on a threshold, uh, which is, I think, very much the way people feel that they are right now. So, um, so Susan Campbell, uh, not too long after you came out here and we were working together, you mentioned that you grew up in and were still active in the Church of Christ. And although I was not a church-going person at the time, I was uh, someone who had studied religious history an awful lot. And so uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I went, wait a minute, your name is Campbell? Uh, yep. And you're in the Church of Christ because that's like being a possum and your name is Pogo or something. You know, it's like that's like being royalty, <laughs> fundamentalist royalty, the Campbell Stone movement. Yeah. And I'm actually related. Yeah. I'm big Which, time. Right. You know. Yeah, it, I'm huge. It's a it's a it's a mantle not to be worn lightly. So, you know, and. <laughs> Over the years, you, we've had a number of conversations about faith, and you know, and I want to, I want to talk a little bit now. You've you wrote a book called Dating Jesus, which you explain a, a lot about yourself in that regard. Um, I think there's been even more change since the time the book came out, but this is a time where either we find something to nourish us in faith, mm. or or we don't. And I don't know what. So what's going on with you that you're willing to talk about anyway? <laughs> So I spent yesterday with my earbuds in listening to Southern gospel that get your ass to church songs with perfect harmony. And mm -hmm. I'm listening, thinking this is weird, but I'd still love the music. I left that church. I didn't leave Christianity. So um, where I am now, I, I hate call, calling it a faith journey. I heard that so much in the seminary about gag, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of standing still myself. Um, I, I still believe um, I don't try to argue anyone into or out of a belief. I think it's so much a part of moving through life that I can't even differentiate where my faith starts. Does that sound weird? 
No, it doesn't sound weird at all. Keep keep talking. Keep talking. Well, this is from a big old cusser who's not above slapping someone in. Well, I don't actually slap, but I like. I would like to one day. (laughs) Um, I I think about. I think I have pared down a lot of what I was taught growing up to a really super simple faith, Hmm. and it's portable. It's light, and I don't have to be in a pew to practice or even worship. yeah, so that's where I am. I mean, I, I feel very cut off right now. And mm-hmm. speaking of journeys, I, at one point you suggested to me that I was having a walk with Jesus uh, uh, a few <laughs> years ago. Uh, and very and me. you were absolutely right. Um, and, and although I discovered, I mean, really, I, you know, I mean, first of all, I, I, I envy you the feeling that you were starting to articulate there that you really don't know where faith begin ends and you begin that it's all kind of it's not a thing that you step into yeah. um, all the time or or pull down off the shelf and you know because it's you've already got it um it's already there it's it's bred into you and i don't really feel as though that i have that and if i don't maintain it then it's not available to me and i i feel very cut off from it right now you know very um undernourished that way it would really be good to have a faith response to this moment right i mean i think people need it as much as they've ever needed it although it could be argued that you always need it you just don't know it but uh and i don't know what i'm expecting you to do for me at this moment uh except perhaps say something (laughs) give you special just fundamentalists don't have dispensation um do you feel cut off because you cannot physically attend i know your church means a great deal to you because you can't physically attend no, you know, for me, um, uh, I have to be honest and say that my f- walk with Jesus started because of a very special relationship between me and a specific pastor, uh, Nancy Butler. And when I met her, she was dying. You know, when I met her, she had ALS, and there just wasn't any question. This is a disease that has absolutely, you know, one ending, and it, it's a, not way in the d- far distant future. And so we went through this whole thing together, you know, where we were communicating in all kinds of complicated ways, even after she lost the ability to speak. And and when it was all over, when she died, I realized uh, that I was much more reliant on a specific person. You know, mm-hmm. I hadn't really been brought up in any particular faith. In fact, my parents were, you know, actively not interested uh, in things like that. And that a couple of times in my life, I found a person who could communicate that stuff to me and tell me, you know, what it all meant. But there is a phrase that Nancy used to use that's not unique to her that maybe I can use to circle back to you. And that is the idea of picking up your cross. It's something uh, evangelicals talk about a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Pick up your cross. And and that's kind of, I, I've seen you doing that a little bit. I mean, even maybe just that whole idea of writing notes or you, know, you kind of, uh, as I recall, tried to celebrate some of your students uh, at the university when it was clear that they weren't going to be conventionally celebrated. That, to me, looked like maybe picking up your cross. Oh, now, see, I grew up picking up your cross was like a cross to bear. <laughs> like, oh, crap, I got to do this. Well, yeah, you got to go. Yeah, you got to go do something. Yeah. Oh, but I don't look at that stuff as, oh, crap, I got to write a note to someone. What a pain in the butt. Because <laughs> as we know, the dirty little secret of doing good works is that you get something out of it as well, like Mm -hmm. reaching out to someone that helps you. Those students, I am so sorry, this interrupted their paths. And and all I could think of was we are graduate, and not just University of New Haven, but we are graduating some incredible young people and you need to know them. 
And I got so much credit for that. And I'm thinking, well, what, what's everyone else doing? You know, you don't just flush them out and good luck to you. Come back and see us someday when you're famous and can write a check to the school. You know, they, they, they worked hard. And in my case, the journalism students kept publishing, kept broadcasting remotely through the pandemic. I am so impressed with that. So it wasn't like, oh crap, I got to give them some attention now. It was more like, of course I'm going to give them attention. Look what they did. Right. And yes, picking up your cross typically to evangelicals means you go to Guatemala and you help people recover from a mudslide or something like that. I mean, I get that. (laughs) But but now you can't do that. But one of the things you can do is maybe turn away from your own problems, which people are are very focused on right now, their own problems and maybe focus on somebody else and, and their problems, too. So. Well, look, that's about it. You know, I could give you another 30 seconds if you got something, you you know. Uh, you feel we didn't uh, cover. No, I used to say at the end of an interview, if you have any parting words of wisdom, I'll take them. And then I always know that put people on the spot and I could leave. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. It's horrible. I have no parting words of wisdom, but I really enjoy this. This went fast for me. I hope the listeners (laughs) didn't nod off. No, I I think, you know, it was kind of what I hoped it would be. I I, I really think just having a conversation uh, sometimes is... um, you know, it's just different from interrogating somebody about stuff. So, yeah. um, all right. And Betsy Kaplan is just uh, slacking at me. It was good, really, exclamation point. That's all we need is Betsy Kaplan's benediction. Oh, okay, then. I'm, I'm good. We're done. Yeah, we can go uh, walk our paths uh, in uh, other directions. Susan Campbell has joined us for the hour. I think it has been terrific. I ho- hope you have something to take away from it all. And now I'm going to go pick up my cross and <laughs> try, to do, try to do something. Maybe I'll make dinner, you know. Anyway, you Susan go. Campbell, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much. Give me life, give me life, give me-